You're listening to Efficiently Effective, a podcast on content strategy and user experience. My name is Saskia Wiedeler. And this is part two of a mini-series on GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. If you want to know about the basic implications of GDPR, check out part one first. It will help you to better understand the advice given in this episode. So where were we? Ah, yes. GDPR will protect the privacy of European citizens. Its strict rules will change everything, also outside of Europe. Here's Bart van den Brande at Sirius Legal to explain. One of the consequences of these new rules is that by next year we will have to make sure that all tools that are used, all services that are used, are GDPR compliant. Because as an organization you will no longer be allowed to use tools or services that can't guarantee that they are compliant. That means, and that is one of the main um, tasks for us, um, for our clients uh, by next year, that every organization will have to start to make an, an inventory um, a repository of all tools that are used. We will have to check user conditions, terms of use of all those tools, of all those services, of all the all software applications. We will have to verify that they can guarantee that they are GDPR compliant because otherwise you will have to start looking for alternatives. Um, not only tools that y- of which you know that they use your data. If you use a, a newsletter um, sending tool, then you know that data will be shared. But it's often in, in places where you don't expect it, like, uh, for instance, internal messenger uh, tools that are used by, by teams to, to share information within a team. Um, there as well, personal data may be shared. Huh? You, you will use names of clients um, in, in messaging. Um, if the servers of, of that type of tool are in the EU, then the only thing we need to do is make sure that um, they can guarantee that they are GDPR compliant. But you, what you should know is that if those tools that you use today are not European tools, but they are, for instance, American, that the second problem is that there is, in most cases, data exports um, outside of the EU, which is um, subject to very strict rules um, and that we will have to verify by next year if those rules are met. Um, basically, and, and this is a very short summary, but the basic idea is that um, non-European tools have to guarantee that the data protection rules in their country of origin are similar to the European Union. They can do that in a number of ways, but they have to give that uh, that, that guarantee, which for f- specifically for the United States is, is, is kind of a problem because um, the NSA and the CIA read everything which means that data is never really sure in the US. So there is a lot of work to be done there, and um, I suspect that the most of the, 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 the bigger players, the, the most well-known uh, tools and services, will um, make sure that they are compliant in time because they have so many European clients that they will be forced um, to, to, uh, to get in line. But if you use smaller companies, tools, services, websites, um, software then you should be very careful. You should also know that um, in most organizations, um, there will in the future be a data protection officer um, in place. One of the tasks of that data protection officer will be to run a check on the reliability, the legal compliance of software and tools that you want to use. So in the future, one of the first reflexes you should have, the first initial reactions you should have when you want to use um, certain services, certain tools, certain software, is to double check with data protection officer for starting to use it. If you offer a service in which you process personal data and you don't comply, you are likely to see a decline in business from European partners from May 2018. 
So what about enforcement? What if you do get caught? Bart? The Privacy Commission, the government body that is responsible for enforcing the current rules and the future rules under the General Data Protection Regulation, is being reformed. They will have a lot more manpower uh, as of next year, and they will have the uh, the legal possibility to actually enforce and, and impose fines for companies that do not comply to the rules. And that includes also companies outside of Europe. That also includes companies outside of Europe for the first time because one of the main reasons why the rules change is because the European Commission saw that um, American-based um, organizations or Russian or Chinese-based organizations that do business within the European Union escaped um, European data protection rules um, because they don't have either a company or servers in the EU, because that, that those were the two criteria in the past. You had to have your company seat or the service based in the EU. For the first time now, as of next year, organizations that want to do business, offer services within the EU, will also have to comply, which is, in my opinion, a bit naive, because um, it's very hard to impose fines on companies that you can't actually reach. A company operating from China, if they don't respect the rules and you impose a fine of, um, the fines under the GDPR go up to 20 million of euros. Um, if you impose a fine of 20 million euros on a Chinese company that has no presence within the EU, you don't have the the physical means to actually impose that fine um, because they don't, there is no presence here. You can try to block websites, but as we all know, if you block websites on one side, they pop up up on the other side the next morning. So it's a bit naive, I think. But there is one reason why, in, specifically in B2B relationships, non-EU companies will have to comply, specifically service providers and software providers. That is because the GDPR also contains a clause that says that um, European-based companies, or all companies, that hire other companies um, to offer services that have access to their data will have to sign a written agreement in which they guarantee that they are compliant to GDPR. And if as a data owner, you don't have a written agreement with a service provider that has access to your data, so, and something goes wrong in the future, you will be liable. The consequence is that a lot of our clients in online marketing, for instance, are getting dozens of requests from car manufacturers, from supermarket chains, from big retailers, um, with a request to prove that they are compliant and to put a written agreement in place. European consumers are getting more and more aware of the importance of their data and the importance of data protection. By next year in May, um, every newspaper, every TV and radio station will have items on general data protection regulation. The awareness with the consumers will only grow, um, which also will have as a consequence, I think, that companies that respect people's data and that can really use data compliance as a sales argument will have an advantage in the European markets. And American companies, for instance, that want to compete with European companies but can't offer the same security, the same safety, will in time have a disadvantage, a commercial disadvantage, I think. It will be fascinating to see how companies in and outside of Europe will react to the GDPR. What measures will they take? What opportunities will they find? You will remember Katrina Dow from our first episode. She's the founder of Miko.me, a smart platform that enables people to share the data they want to share with companies they trust. In return, they receive special, more personal and relevant services and offers from these companies. Katrina, 
What's your overall impression and opinion on the GDPR? So, so the GDPR um, actually is uh, is a real blessing because when um, when I founded the company a number of years ago um, in 2012, uh, I was really confident that somewhere in the world we would find um, a regulatory or a governance um, environment that was focused on data as an asset and it belonging to the individual, to the citizen. Um, so this was a bit of a, a gamble, really. Um, but I, I, I really believed that it was going to happen. And um, so when there was early talk about the general data protection regulation, um, the move in Europe to be very focused on the rights of the citizen, uh, as soon as that was really clear, then we set up an office in London. So from our perspective, you know, we see it very positive move forward. I think we're at this crossroads, really, where you see in Europe more and more regulation moving towards the rights of the citizen or the recognition that data is an asset. And like any asset, your home, you know, uh, shares that you have in the stock market, if you control that, there, you are the beneficiary. Um, and so I think, I personally think that if that is done well, it could lead to a digital renaissance. You know, really fantastic. Conversely, <laughs> you're looking in the United States at the moment with many of the rights and freedoms that had been achieved through the previous administration that are now being rolled back and repealed. And I think, you know, the contrast is that's really taking people to kind of digital feudalism, you know, where the rights of the customer, and I'm not even talking about uh, human rights or basic rights as a citizen, I'm talking about the fact that people pay for a service. And then even after paying for the service, the information they've given to that service is then further monetized without them being involved in that value exchange at all. So we, so we, have, this, we have this really growing divide um, and very different um, societal approach to the value of information and the value of citizens and their rights in that regard. With fines up to 20 million euros, the regulation is to be taken seriously by all companies in and outside of Europe. How can you, in your UX and content work, take all the rules into account? Clovis Six at Internet Architects told us in the first episode about the naive to sometimes downright creepy practices that sometimes happen in enterprises that handle personal data. Clovis will give us a step-by-step -step overview on how to make sure our UX processes are GDPR compliant. If it comes to user research, which is usually the first step in your, your project, right? Um, the first thing you have to do is figure out how are you going to approach user research complying in compliance with the, the new uh, GDPR. Um, because if you start collecting data using surveys, you have to be aware what data is it that you collect and is that personal data or not. If it is personal data, you also have to make sure that you clearly state the goal to the user. Um, they also figure out how long are you going to keep all that data, who's going to be able to view the data. Um, also, if you retain the data for a while, for example, let's say two years, if you keep a, or link it to personal data, you also have to make sure that uh, you tell them, okay, um, we ask your email address for this goal, for example, to uh, contact them again for a follow-up study. But then you also have to tell them, okay, so after that follow-up study, we will delete your email address. And then you will also have to do it. That's really important. Um, then another thing is they have the right to delete or alter their data. So as soon as you ask for an email address or anything that identifies them in connection to the survey data, 
you should allow them to alter or delete them. So you should have processes set up for that. Be aware that it's not just asking an email address or a first name or a last name. It can be hidden in, in certain data. For example, an IP address. SurveyMonkey, for example, they by default, they ask for an IP address. So be aware that if you're using SurveyMonkey or any other surveying tool, be aware that they're tracking that. And as soon as you do that, that means that you're tracking personal data and they can link an identity to that. It doesn't always have to be a one-on-one -on -one link because they can go through extraordinary lengths to get certain data, especially if it's data around uh, f finance or if it's data around uh, your health situation. For example, if you ask for dietary patterns to somebody, then you're already in that segment. Um, it can also be something else. For example, if you take a screenshot while you're doing analysis or click analysis, so for example, they're tracking user behavior or journey, and then all of a sudden they take a screenshot and they take a screenshot of the form the user and then there's already first name last name filled in and a date of birth if another colleague of yours uh, is able to go into the data of uh, Hotjar for example which is a, an analytics tool then uh, they shouldn't be able to see somebody else's uh, telephone number for example but there are ways to to obfuscate that and make sure that you cannot see that anymore so that is for research um, then uh, I think the next part in a project usually is where you get to contact certain participants again. Um, as an agency, you're at least in my case, uh, you're working with projects uh, for other customers and you do research in their name, which basically states that you have a cooperation with them and you should check the, the contractual uh, negotiations and what is in the contract around data and the transferring of data because at the end of the day, the survey goes out from the client. So they're responsible for the data and the data handling. So basically make sure that you contact their lawyers and their, their DPOs, uh, make sure that they're aware of it and have a strategy worked out with them. If they need to get uh, the information back and contact certain participants also, be very, very cautious with that. Don't just go handing out Excel files with uh, lists of, of users in with their uh, email addresses. But it happens every day, I'm telling you, it really does. So so that is that's definitely uh, something to, to watch out for, mainly because if you put something in a database, for example, it's pretty easy to remove something. If you put in an Excel file, if it's copied and copied and copied again, then all of a sudden one person might ask to be deleted out of the the company's data and then you're responsible for getting it out of all these copies and copies and copies and copies of excels if there's one excel out there where it's still in there and it goes back to the data subject the subject is probably well at least he has a right to go to the privacy commission and ask for uh, an investigation The next step in the project or in our projects are uh, personas. For personas as well, make sure that you do not use any personal data, which means that um, even if you link up two data pieces, for example, first name of somebody and um, an age, be very cautious with that. The more you mix it up, the better. A similar thing that um, we recommend to do as well is that if you create your designs, so we already 
we already talked about that, right? Uh, if you create your designs, don't use your own name in the design. For example, if there's a login menu with, which states your name, put something else in there, John Doe, or create a character within your company that you're using all the time. Just don't don't use data from somebody within the company. Um, and that uh, that uh, reminds me of one thing that is testing data. Also, be very careful of that because you cannot just start using testing data because what happens now is um, usually uh, they set up a testing environment, a website or uh, a product with some sample data from their real environment, which all of a sudden everybody internally has access to. This is an absolute no-go anymore. So your testing data cannot be identifiable anymore, which means that you're also going to have to set up processes for that. Then in the design, I think the best way to explain some of the, the pitfalls that I've encountered there is to, to give you an example. And the example I want to give you is uh, an e-commerce case. What I had to do is we had to do a redesign of, of an, an e-commerce website. Um, and there's always a few points where we have to, uh, we have to kind of spend some more attention on. First thing is um, profiling and, and registration. So usually there's two things that uh, are connected to personal data it is either the checkout or a profile. And there are two different cases. The profile case is where you need to uh, kind of give a consent. You have to ask consent because there's no real action involved or, or it's no there's no contract involved. I'll put it like that. So if there's no contract, you have to ask for a consent to user to use their personal data. So we had to create a registration form where we asked for their consent in terms of privacy and we had to be very transparent about what we did. That means how long uh, were we going to keep the data, where we're going to store the data, who will get the data, what we're going to do with the data, so the explicit goals. And the way we did that was, well, next to every single input field, we at least uh, added a, a notice to, to tell the user, okay, uh, if you ask your date of birth, this is the reason why. If you ask your first name and last name, this is the reason why. Also, if you ask uh, if you're male or female, this is the reason why. Uh, first name and last name might be very obvious, but gender is not always obvious in a case like that. Because I don't really know why a lot of websites ask my gender. Because, for example, in an e-commerce setting, it really doesn't matter if I'm male or female in order to buy the product I want. It matters to them to do advertising to me. But that's another case and then they have to ask my consent again. That is usually where the, where the problem starts if you're, if you're talking to a marketing department. Um, so that is for uh, registration. So make sure that you're cl very clear cut. You have to be kind of the white knight of privacy. Make sure, and that is also what the law states, make sure that it um, that a child of 15 years old can read it. And when they read it and understand it, then you could safely say that most adults will be able to give consent, right? So this is really important. Don't just put it somewhere in a privacy policy. Don't put it in legalese because nobody understands legalese. For the checkout, uh, it was slightly more complex because first of all, it was very unclear where all that data went. So you have to figure out where the data goes. And as a consumer, I was the, the very first few times I was kind of appalled myself to know what was done with all that data. What, what did you find out then? One of the things that I found out is that my data doesn't just stay with the company that I buy. It goes to uh, the delivery service. 
It usually also goes to a payment partner, and I have no idea how long it stays there. I have no idea what they do with it. For certain payment situations, a different flow is taken. For example, if you uh, take a Mastercard or you take uh, a Visa, then there's certain payment providers in Belgium that uh, the data has to go through. But it's important f- to know that uh, if I give my my Mastercard details, is it gonna stay on the servers of uh, the the e-commerce provider, or is it gonna stay on the servers of the uh, payment provider? Because I trust the payment provider a great deal more than I trust an e-commerce provider, especially if they're small, because the the payment providers usually have a lot more money and and, and resources to deal with with good data protection. Um, on the other hand, they're also very transparent about their their policies, so. That is kind of a, something we really had to kind of put our teeth in um, because it's we cannot just if they start with their checkout we cannot just say this is going to be the way your data is going to travel and this is going to be what you're going to do it all depends on the options they select if they want to delivery it's going to be a different case then we have to tell them what's going to happen in order to deliver what's going to happen with their data if it's uh, where they have to go get their products, um, then it's also a whole different kind of scenario, right? There's also the information for invoicing. And uh, for invoicing, there's also lots of information that they can ask. Be very conscious about what, inf- what the information is that you absolutely need in order to reach the goal. Again, gender is very, very, it's, it's very prevalent, but it's very, not necessary in order to buy something. Usually they try to put everything in there. For example, asking for a newsletter, subscription, all these kind of things. That's all not necessary for the goal. In terms of uh, storing your survey results in an Excel file or any other regular file, don't do it. Don't even do it with a password because you can hack up an Excel file with a password at any time. I can do it. So it's really easy. <laughs> Don't trust all these all these mechanisms and, and really inform yourself about what is a trustworthy way to store data securely. Thanks for that amazing and very comprehensive overview, Clovis. It sounds like there are quite some extra steps and processes to take care of. As a content professional, I'm especially excited to start helping making privacy policies more readable, more understandable. I envision this to be a joint effort between UX and content teams and legal experts. I spoke about this with Bart van den Brande too, and we think the best way to do it for now is to let the legal department create a document with all the right information and then let the UX and content team have a go at it. For structure and emphasis, can't we define a set of top tasks for privacy policies, such as knowing what happens with my data, viewing my data, looking up what recently changed in this privacy policy? Then let's see how we can translate all the legalese to digestible content, words and images or icons. The policy will have to go back and forth to the legal department and us, maybe a couple of times, but I'm sure we will be able to pull this off together. Now, we are not only professionals, often enough we are the consumers, visitors and users. And from that perspective, we will experience the same changes that our customers will. 
Of course, we'll have to see how everything will play out exactly, but it's likely that we will get asked for pieces of information about ourselves more often, but more in context with what we're doing. So instead of a longer form that you fill out or a profile that you complete, you will share bits of your data along the way. It seems like you're a big fan of pancakes. Can we add this to your profile? You've done a lot of runs lately. May we save your runs and times to send you better offers for sportswear? It's then up to you to decide whether this is really relevant to you and whether you want to share this information with the party at the other end. And this is helpful. Think of the time that you had to do a lot of runs for a particular event and then afterwards you got stalked with running gear adverts for weeks even though they were not really relevant to you anymore. Organizations may end up with less records of individuals in their databases, but the information they do have is more reliable, more accurate and less likely to be out of date. Aral Balkan is the founder of Indi, a social enterprise striving for social justice in the digital age. He's also part of DiEM25, a pan-European cross-border movement of Democrats striving for a democratic European Union and a fair, safe and democratic web. Aral, do you think the GDPR goes far enough? Well, I think the GDPR is a positive step. Um, I think it is a, uh, a force for good. Um, I don't think it's going to fix all of these problems. I mean, there are uh, aspects of it that are, of course, problematic. I do believe that Paul Nemitz um, at the European Commission, who was one of the key authors or is one of the key authors, um, is one of the few people at the European Commission who's really doing these things for the right reason and with the right ethics. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for him, which can't be said for a lot of people at the European Commission. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a good thing that it exists. It's better that it exists than it doesn't exist. But it's not going to cure all of this. If anything, it's a, a band-aid. You know, it's, it's a stopgap. It's a way of trying to curb the abuses which are the norm today. You know, there, there, there are very problem, problematic aspects of it. For example, consent. Um, the idea of consent sounds great, and GDP, and, and it's a key element in, G, in the GDPR. Um, but do we really have consent if the alternative to our giving consent is not having access to these services? Especially if this business model that I was talking about, people farming, if that is the business model of nearly every service, digital service that's available to us today, if we have a monopoly of this business model, what does it mean for us not to give consent and then not get access? It means that we basically uh, remove ourselves from modern life. So that's very problematic. Consent should not be tied to not receiving the service if it's any way possible to build that service uh, without capturing your data. And of course it is. But because of the socioeconomic systems uh, that we have today, uh, the surveillance capitalism, because of the huge returns and profits within this system of essentially farming people and owning people, uh, we're not building technology that way. So we really need to regulate much harder um, to say, look, this is an abusive practice. We're not going to support this practice in the EU because we're, we're, we're supporting this with you know, European Commission funds, with European taxpayers' money. We're supporting startups that have this business model. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, and we should be saying that we're going to be very tough on people who are abusing human rights in this way to give the alternatives a chance to rise because we need 
you know, ethical alternatives that are decentralized, interoperable, free and open, zero knowledge. We know how to build technologies in an ethical way. And I think we have a unique opportunity in Europe to build technologies that way. Do you think it's strict enough? I think within the current frameworks, within the current system, and we remember that the European Union is not a very democratic system. In fact, it's probably not a democratic system. Um, within the constraints of the European Commission, the European Parliament, the system we have today, I think it's probably the best we could have hoped for. And that is, again, thanks to the efforts, you know, the extraordinary efforts of people like Paul Nemitz, um, you know, who are there and doing this for the right reasons, um, against the grain, against the odds. Um, so I think it's the best we could hope for right now. I think it's definitely going to have an effect already from day one, you know, lawyers for corporations started looking for loopholes in, in all of these. And, and some of it has to get tested. Um, we have the e-privacy regulation, which, you know, in its current form is very, very problematic. Uh, that also figures into this conversation. Uh, for example, in the current e-privacy regulation, uh, if you're walking around a town, a city, um, and you're being tracked Uh, through your Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth on your phone and, and on your other devices, all, all the tracking parties have to do is put a sign saying you're being tracked. That's it, right? And that's okay. They're okay legally. And so what if you don't want to be tracked? We'll turn off your phone. Unacceptable. Um, thankfully, just yesterday, the European Parliament released their initial review of this and objected uh, to that. Uh, so there are, you know, elements in the e-privacy regulation as well that really either water down or aren't strong enough in protecting, uh, in protecting our rights. Um, it's good to see the European Parliament pushing back on this. Uh, but again, within the current system, I think, you know, we're doing the best we can. What we really need is a paradigm shift. What we need is uh, an audacious, radical change of direction. In Europe. That's what we're trying to achieve at DM25. That's why I joined their advisory panel. That's why I'm leading a tech uh, policy initiative, a progressive tech policy initiative there, the Internet of People, to say, look, it's great that we're trying to work within the current system to regulate as much as we can. We really can't because it's institutionally corrupt. You know, these same companies that we're trying to regulate are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to lobby the people that should be regulating them. Some of the people who should be regulating them in a few years' time are going to go and work there. You know, we call these revolving doors. So we have an institutionally corrupt system. So there's only so much we can do. But what if, imagine, imagine a future where we take it as a basic human right that people should own and control their own space on the Internet. And that space that they own and control is where all of our smart devices connect to um, so that we have individual sovereignty so that we start building a healthy commons, so that we have an ethical core on which to build a healthy economy. That's what we're trying to build with the Internet of People initiative at the M25. So we really need to start thinking quite audaciously um, and, and, and differently in Europe. You know, I think it's plain, it's very clear that we don't need to follow the US's lead anymore. Um, in, in a lot of different areas, but definitely when it comes to Silicon Valley and this toxic business model. Let's do better in, in, in Europe. Let's, let's build an ethical path, a, a divergent ethical path forward. It's a step in the right direction, indeed. Let's make the web a better, safer place together. I'm looking forward to see new initiatives and great cases of GDPR implementation popping up in the near future. 
So here's the last overview of things that you can and should start doing right now. And don't wait because before you know it, the grace period is over. So check with your company where you stand with GDPR compliancy. Find the task force and let them know you are here to help. Dig up your privacy policy and test it for transparency and readability. A 15-year-old should be able to understand it. Check whether the tools you use for testing are GDPR compliant. If necessary, find new ones. Make sure you ask for consent in context. So rethink your forms and all the points that you ask for personal data. Design a beautiful flow for the user to view, edit or delete their data. Educate yourself on GDPR. You'll find some helpful links at efficientlyeffective.fm. That's it for this episode and the GDPR miniseries. If you enjoyed it and found it helpful, please tell a friend, a coworker, or your Twitter audience about us. Or get in touch and let us know directly what you think. There's a forum on efficientlyeffective.fm. And you can also email us at podcast at efficientlyeffective.fm or connect on Twitter. We are EffectivePod. Big thanks to our experts, Katrina Dow at Miko, Clovis Six at Internet Architects, Aral Balkan at Indy, Bart van den Brande at Sirius Legal, and Seppe van Steeland at City of Ghent. Editing and technical support by Sanders Polspool. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. And by Tetrial. Efficiently Effective is a production by The Duchess. Next month, Jess Hutton, who is a content strategist at Clearlink, will rekindle your love for SEO. SEO is words, and it's words for people who are searching, and content strategy is answering searchers' questions, right, and giving them the best answer to their questions and the best solution to their problems. I, I don't know why we've never really talked about them together. They, they kind of go hand in hand. Enjoy your summer. We'll meet again in August. <laughs>